Hello and welcome to the University Guy podcast. I'm David Hawkins. I'm an independent college counsellor in England and I enjoy delving into the topics which surround international university admissions. In this episode, I'm kicking off an occasional series of In Conversation with episodes where I interview people from within the field of international university admissions and ask them to offer their own perspective on past, current and future trends. Today I have a very special inaugural guest. So this evening I'm talking with John Wilkerson from Indiana University in Bloomington. John, as many listeners will know, is incredibly experienced in the world of international higher education service in all sorts of interesting roles and is currently the uh, one of the vice presidents of International ACAC. So John, thank you so much for giving up your time to talk to me. Thank you, David. So John, maybe just to start off, do you want to just give us a little bit of an overview of your, your current institution and your current role? Sure. Um, so I, I serve right now as the Assistant Vice President for International Services and Director of International Admissions for Indiana University uh, at Bloomington, and IUB is the flagship campus for the Indiana University system. Uh, as such, we have about 48,000 students on our campus. The system as a whole has about 100,000 students, and I serve in a little bit of a dual capacity. I have some responsibilities of my job that um, do involve system-wide uh, work around best practice, um, overseeing some processing and things like that for for the system at a support level. Uh, but the bulk of my work is with the Bloomington campus, the, the flagship campus. And it's a comprehensive research university, a uh, high level of research output here. We welcome students from all over. About 130 countries are represented on our campus right now. Uh, that's about 13 to 14% um, an international representation in our overall student body, uh, and that, that includes both undergraduate and graduate. Uh, we have students from all 50 states, every inhabited continent. Um, it truly is a, a research one global university. Wow, that would, I knew the scales were big, but that's quite impressive. So yeah. to, to get to the, to the position you hold now and, and the, the respect with it, those of us in this community hold you. How did that journey start? So if we, we dial back the, the clock a little bit, how did you get into working in international higher education? Completely by accident, which is, is probably an answer that you would hear a lot, I, I assume. I think so, yeah. If you, yeah, if you ask around. Um, I, I started working as a part-time teller in a bank when I was doing my undergraduate, um, which started out in business, ended up with dual degrees in psychology and sociology, so didn't <laughs> didn't stay in that business track very long. Um, but I did stay in banking. Uh, I did that for, I think, about four years, and through a series of mergers and things that were happening within banking deregulation in the States, this was the mid to late 90s, uh, I ended up at 23 as an assistant vice president for charter consolidations and um, really just <laughs> very, very young and very inexperienced for the job that I was doing. And I remember a, a pivotal night uh, coming back from uh, a branch that I was that was part of the area that I was overseeing in St. Louis and crossing the bridge. And I don't you know, probably you've not seen St. Louis from the Illinois side, but when you cross it, really, it's it's a spectacular skyline, just gorgeous with the gateway arch and I looked at that in my windshield and I looked behind me 
at uh, a crime scene that was unfold, <laughs> unfolding, oh, nice. and I thought, you know, that's that's pretty indicative of, of a life path. Um, so it, it was a it was an epiphanous moment where I really consciously thought, this is not what I want to do. Um, I was attracted to something bigger and and more interesting, and so so I left banking. Uh, I took a two-year detour and and did some. Uh, telecom regulation, which sounds about as exciting as it is. Uh, and then while I was doing that, I was really just trying to get into um, into work that had meaning. So I ended up uh, volunteering at a crisis intervention center, uh, and we did suicide prevention, community outreach, things like that. And through the course of that uh, volunteer effort, they actually offered me a job, and so I became a uh, program director for this for this center. And in that work, I interfaced a lot. This was in Columbia, Missouri, which is a college town, and I interfaced quite a bit with students from the University of Missouri, Columbia College, Stevens College. Um, just there's a really quite a concentration of uh, higher ed institutions there. And as I was doing that, I was also taking some classes and meeting some people who were working at these universities, and they approached me. Well, one in particular that I became very good friends with approached me about a position that was opening up at Columbia College that was going to deal with um, international and graduate admissions, and it sounded interesting. They had approached me about another position earlier uh, that I wasn't interested in. So I went in and met with them again, and they graciously offered me the job, not knowing neither of us, neither Columbia College nor nor myself, knew really too terribly much about international student recruitment or, or things like that. They certainly had international students, but it had been um, – their work was much more around the advising side and, and things like that. Uh, and I was very, very fortunate to land there uh, because it was a well-resourced institution with a fantastic commitment towards uh, international international work. So my first year, they basically gave me a pretty generous budget and said, "Go forth and learn, <laughs> learn, learn what we what we don't know." Um, and so I met with you know colleagues at some peer institutions and at the University of Missouri, and uh, made trips to consulates in Chicago and embassies in D.C. and missions in New York and a couple of other conferences, and really put together a pretty comprehensive uh, report as to what was happening in the field writ large. Um, where Columbia College's strengths were uh, in regard to that, and then also um, where some potential opportunities uh, could be realized. And again, with, with continued institutional support, we increased international student enrollment within the course of a year by 50%. Um, this is a small campus, 1,250 students at the time. Um, but from that point forward, had over 10% international representation from at least 40 countries. So it was, you know, for that size, pretty, pretty diverse. Um, I ended up... Uh, four years later, I think, as their director of admissions and did that for a minute until University of Missouri School of Journalism came knocking and asked me to uh, direct their study abroad program, which I jumped at because it was an opportunity to round out um, international education experience on my resume. So I had done the immigration advising a bit as part of my role at Columbia College. I'd done the admissions, but I hadn't done study abroad. I hadn't done the outward 
piece. Um, and so to do that for another major, you know, research globally engaged university was wasn't was something I couldn't pass up. So I did that for a few years, and then Mizzou asked me to start up an international recruitment uh, plan and in their admissions office, and I did that and ended my time there as director of international admissions. That was almost four years ago, and Indiana University graciously brought me on board to uh, to work in as a director of international admissions for them, and then subsequently have taken on some additional duties with immigration advising and client relations and sponsored student programs and things like that. So that was a lot, David. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> Gosh, there's a lot there, John. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating journey. And, I, and as you said at the start, I think, you know, I, I would confess to it myself, a lot of people fall into this by accident and discover a love for the work that we do. Uh, I wonder, given the, the work that you've done outside of, of higher education and then now, yeah, that, the career you've just outlined in it. Do you see any particular parallels between you know, you said banking and telecoms and working with people? What sort of yeah. things um, occur to you? That... Um, the, the business aspect, I'm surprised how much I still carry forward from, um, from banking and telecom. The regulatory piece makes sense, right? And in banking, I had to know Reg CC and Truth and Lending and Reg E and BSA and all, the, all these things. You know, uh, They can spout out acronyms in banking probably almost as well as we can in, in international ed. Um, but it, it really uh, – I, I think – and actually, I've never I've never really thought about that uh, until you asked the question. But interestingly, a lot of those regulations that are in place in both banking and telecom ultimately had to do with consumer protections and transparency and consistency of practice and things like that. So there's a definite parallel um, between those worlds. Uh, and what we do just in terms of business, uh, there's a lot of budgeting there, a lot of client relationship. Relationship management, I think, is, is pretty key through all of this. Um, I think that what's interesting, especially my, my counseling program, uh, my master's degree is in counseling psychology. And so when I, as I would see clients, and, and this was true also in, in, uh, in my time working at the crisis center, there's uh, – both of those really caused me to hone em em skills of empathy, I think, listening. You know, people talk a lot about active listening and things like that, but actually being somewhat intuitive, and that has served me very well in working with students. But I think also uh, managing the relationships across the breadth of, of the field, so with counselors, with colleagues, with administrators, politicians. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of it's, – it's also, I think, all of those – all of my experiences have informed what I look for um, when we onboard new team members also. You can teach just about anybody a skill, but it's those uh, less effable qualities, I think, um, that, I, that I look for in others. And, and even if they're not honed, um, I don't know, you know, those, is those intangible qualities, is curiosity, um, kindness, uh, I think those those go a long way. Absolutely, I, I would agree, and, and certainly and we're, we're recording this today on, on what's A-level results day here in the UK, and certainly, yeah. you know, I spend a lot of the day dealing with students at a, at a very vulnerable time in their lives. Um, I, as you say, to be able to empathise with people 
not necessarily see agree with their views, but to see where they're coming from and, and understand their concerns, I think is is crucial. I, I'm interested in just stepping back a little. Obviously, you talked about the timeline that you've been working in international higher education. That That's a time where I think technology and travel has radically changed the way people are able to do this this kind of work and and also you know changing world demographics the opening up of the old soviet union and east and west yeah. changes in in china so many trends that that you must have seen in the time you've been doing this work if you had to pick out a couple of things what would you say have been the big changes you've seen in your the time of your career in this area well certainly technology um that that's huge i still remember walking down a stairwell with a vp of enrollment management um at a previous institution and showing her how i could get email on my <laughs> samsung flip phone <laughs> um and and how impressed she was by that and and me being concerned uh because i happen to know that this this particular professional would perch a laptop on top of her treadmill at night so that she could send emails as thoughts occurred to her and i thought oh what what have i done i mean <laughs> i'm gonna get emails from everywhere um but that that has been huge in terms of just talking with students as well the, the and and counselors um every venue of communication is open to to all of us and so i i think of the contacts that i have with students and counselors and you know cbo and ngo folks through facebook whatsapp uh, not so much Twitter, but but you know uh, even Instagram, just just what have you. So that's huge. But I think the the geopolitical trends have also been interesting to have started in the field um, during the Bush administration uh, and and its foreign relations approach, and then continuing to the Obama you know administration, which had a completely different uh, perception within the within the world. And now um, seeing a, a different <laughs> political approach, uh, it's made me, I think, very cognizant in, in a more tangible way of how, how people are perceived in aggregate based on their citizenship or you know, other, other factors and how that sometimes often actually does not align with the actuality of uh, my interactions with them. And I've been treated very well by people in places that I have been surprised to have been as warmly received uh, as an American sometimes, as uh, and, and other places have surprised me. So, uh, so I think that's interesting. And maybe I've just, re maybe I've, <laughs> I've now reached an age where uh, I, I don't expect, I don't, I don't expect social or geopolitical stability, hmm. which sounds dire. It's not meant to, but I, but you know, it, yeah. it's it's interesting to watch the ebbs and flows. Absolutely. I mean, the, one of the things I I reflect on quite a lot actually is the the little bit of time that I served with you on the Council of International Schools Committee and volunteered to run run fairs in Europe and experience for four days the life that that you and people in the field live of not even spending 24 hours in a city and, and flying on and flying on and flying on. You know, you've done this for many, many years and, and others in the field do it, do it regularly. Yeah, does that give you different perspectives on things of you know, constantly hopping city to city to city and, and, as you say, different views on what countries are like, connections with people, those kind of things? 
Yeah, I think there's no more interesting place to watch people than in an airport. Uh, true colors <laughs> shine shine through. Um, you know, so, sometimes it does. Certainly when we travel a lot, when we do have a moment to pause in one place, uh, at least in my experience, life will occasionally slap me across the face and say, pay attention to what you're doing. This is pretty extraordinary. Um, I'm 81 countries in, I think. I've been somewhere around that. Um, and, you know, that's that's an opportunity that you know, who gets to do that um, unless you're idly rich and very curious. Uh, so um, there there are definite benefits to our job that uh, while while it can be exhausting, you know, a different city, a different a different day. Um, there are also those those opportunities to really see a world, to see the world and experience it in ways that just not many people get to. I try to be cognizant of that. I am aware that it has it has certainly altered the way that I view and consume the world, um, but I'm not always sure how. And I I also think that that is not an unhealthy thing uh, because. That ambiguity makes me still every once in a while stop and try to process some of what it is that I'm seeing and what I've experienced. I had a thought the other day. Um, I was watching something on YouTube about shipbuilding, and there was this scene in the video where they were showing how ferries dock um, – and I remember – I thought, gosh, that image looks really familiar to me. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, you watched when you were in New Zealand in the harbor. That's how they came in in Auckland. And I thought, you know, that should not be – it was a wake-up moment. That yeah. should not be a memory or an image that had faded. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but there, you know, we also have to be very careful about who we say that to and how we say it because it can sound really arrogant. Um or entitled, and that's that's not what it's about. Yeah, I, get I don't you. know if that answered your question, David. But it yeah. does. It's, it's. I just find it, it fascinating that you know the the dipping in and out of a city and connecting with people on different continents, and and something I reflect on a lot, particularly as as a father with with young children of yeah you know, the experiences I've had in this field and how it's changed me and how it changes their exposure to them. I and mean, I'm, I'm I'm sitting now, you know. In, in the UK, in, in my house, where we've had visitors from all sorts of parts of the world who've come through my house as part of the recruitment activities I do and have met with my children and, and, and things. And it's uh, it's just something to reflect on. It has great positives. Potentially, it ha maybe has some negatives. But it's it's a world that we're in, and it, it's an interesting time to be doing this kind of work, I feel. so. Well, I, I will to, to that point. I am I'm astounded by anyone who does this with a family. I've had relationships while while this is while I've been doing this, they have not lasted and they've they've not withstood this. Some though have probably lasted longer than they should have because I wasn't around. Um, <laughs> but but I do you know I, I see peers and colleagues and I'm every day in wonder of what they're able to do um, because I'm overwhelmed just as a single guy who. You know, I own my remote control. Nobody else gets to grab it. So, Absolutely. yeah, it's, it's interesting. Great stuff. So I want to change tack slightly, John, something which is kind of a, a personal question for me, working with students in, in the UK who, you know, we talked about perception, have particular perceptions of the United States. 
for me, sometimes it's a struggle to get students to look at universities that aren't on either of the coasts in the US. Yeah. You've worked for colleges in Missouri, you're now working in Indiana. Is there, are there particular challenges there? Do you think there's any differences from doing what you do in the part of the US you do compared to maybe some people who are in Massachusetts or in California? Uh, what key issues do you see around the location of the institutions you've worked for? Oh, sure. I, I, there are definitely differences. Um, uh, but I'm also not one of those I, – I don't believe that it's any easier or harder to work based on your zip code. Uh, I think the challenges all even out. Um, I've been very fortunate that everywhere that I've worked has been relatively uh, well-resourced um, with staying power. And, and so there's a – you know, I've, I've never – I can't imagine what it must be like to be at some some institutions, uh, particularly in the last few years, that are facing significant financial um, pressures. Uh, but I do think one one of the this is a challenge that I embrace a little bit though is explaining U.S. geography and, and the Midwest. Yeah. It, when you do find a student who really is is interest is interested in other factors of fit than location. Not to say that they shouldn't be, because for some students that absolutely should should be a component of fit. Um, but when I find students that are open to the Midwest, it's it's really kind of enjoyable to be able to share with them some tidbits about the Midwest experience or the history or the geography. You know, how do we come about? Why why do we do what we do? Some of our quirks. Um, I there there seems to be. I'd be very interested in hearing from someone who's been doing this longer than me. Um, but it seems to be that there is a growing uh, pull towards the coasts uh, within the U.S., more, more so than maybe there was in the past. I'm curious as to whether or not that's politically influenced, whether it's influenced by just media awareness. Um, and I'm also interested as to whether or not that's a product of – global destinations kind of even yeah, not evening the playing field but changing the playing field so that suddenly you know the 50 largest u.s metropolitan areas are not you know half the list of the 100 most dominant urban centers that's not the case anymore you know new york would not be listed in, in the same breath as st louis now bangkok might or you know so so these are I think there's a natural global perspective shift that's happening around that that geography that I don't know is more than I could unpack. That's probably a dissertation. Um, but so so I, I think yeah there there are challenges to being in the Midwest, but I don't think that there are any um, any greater than some of the challenges you know geography specific challenges that are faced by schools on the coast. So. Hmm. Again, does that answer? Your yeah, I mean, it, it does. I think it's yeah. The the perception is is one thing. The reality is the other. And enabling students, as we were saying earlier, about empathy to to see where they're coming from and to understand whether their concerns are based in something that's that's solid and and truthful and meaningful to them, or or is there actually a an issue here which can be pushed back on and and some educational work there. Um, I think that that's that's also part of the institutional imperative of an institution in the Midwest, in particular, not just Midwest, really any anywhere that's lesser known. Um, 
Tuesday night, I was fortunate to have dinner with a group of about 50 uh, graduate scholars through the, that are on campus for a few days as part of the Lakasha program that um, funds uh, graduate programs for students in Spain all around the world. But they, they start that, their program at Indiana for orientation for a couple of days before dispersing. And these the students were going the, – the largest represented university in that group was Harvard and MIT and Stanford and Columbia, you know, WashU. They were going all over. And at that dinner, they had nominated uh, a student speaker to just make some remarks at the close. And, you know, she – of course, she's just hyper-talented, so she was she was fascinating to listen to. But she, she made the comment that she'd never even thought of Indiana, you know, and had given, had given it no thought. But it had altered her impression of the United States in really positive ways. And I thought, you know, that's great. But what I also hope is that her presence in Bloomington those past three days had altered the perception of some folks in the states. Uh, and so I think that imperative is perhaps much more um, present at less globally saturated locations within the U.S. I don't think that there's been a time – well, certainly not since I've been around. There hasn't been a time where we could benefit even more from international exchange than now. In, in the time that you've been doing this work, particularly in Bloomington and, and bringing international students in, sort of coinciding with the, the political trends we've touched on, is that something you've come to see as increasingly important, that the international students aren't just coming to to Bloomington to be in the classrooms, so they're coming in to be in the, in the coffee shops and the, the drive-throughs and the, the Walmarts and those kind of things? Yeah, I think um, if I recall correctly, I think that education right now is the third largest export for the U.S., which oddly are the student, the international students that are here, yeah. are our educational export. Um, so, there, yeah, there's, there's definitely a financial component and, and importance to that, but I don't know that – I think that that has more to do with just economic globalization, period, than it does globalization within education. So there's perhaps a bit of a – I don't think it's a chicken or egg conversation. I think it's just two chickens you know, walking down the road together. Um, that's Midwestern. There we go. Anyway, anyway um, that you know, education – if education truly is meeting its purpose, which is to prepare students to, you know, um, to catalyze inquiry and, and thought and so forth, that should be happening on a global con within a global context. Uh, so I'm not I'm not at all surprised that uh, student student mobility period is on the rise. I think students are more internationally curious, more internationally engaged. Um, but it's definitely it's, – it's a trend that I've seen shift. What's interesting, I think, within higher education is those of us in admissions offices and student programming, things like that, I think that we were ahead of the curve in, in terms of uh, pushing that globalization. I think it, it took a little bit more time for uh, those ideas to seep into programming and curriculum on our campuses. So the support and the admissions, they've, they've been there for quite a while. Um, but it's been, that has been a shift. And I saw, I was really lucky to see that happen at each institution where I've worked, uh, that growing awareness within the entire campus community that 
uh, globalized presence of students and a global engagement effort among scholars on campus really was no longer just a nice thing or a bragging point, but it was it was absolutely vital to the educational mission of the institution. It's fascinating. Is, is that something within the kind of culture of, of a public flagship like Indiana that has a particular priority? You have a mission to serve the, the community of, of the town, of the city, of, of the state. Bringing students from around the world, is that something distinctive to the mission of a public flagship? I don't think it's distinctive at all. I think that it's uh, I think if you find a, a public university, a flagship in particular, uh, that does not have that as an institutional priority or part of its strategic plan, that's a mistake. Um, but I also think that you would be probably pretty hard pressed to find the institutions that don't have it. And to be fair, they, you know, the, the large public research universities were um, very well positioned to deepen their international ties. Um, many of us have been doing this for decades. Uh, we're, we're celebrating our 75th anniversary um, this year for the Office of International Services at Indiana University. So we've been providing specific international student services for 75 years. That's pretty impressive. Um, and I think uh, the, the public universities that are doing it well are those who are successfully making the point that as part of our mission, we are to provide access. And access doesn't only mean a seat in class, but it means quality. And there is no way to extricate global engagement and international thought from quality. Uh, so all, all of the indicators are there. You know, frankly, international engagement should be a no-brainer. It, it should not be a novel idea at a university anymore, whether public or private. Right. So in you know, particular with, you know, public flagships, for an international student, why should they look at, at that style of university? You, know, you talked about access and quality and things there. You know, what are they going to get out of coming to a university like Indiana that they wouldn't get necessarily from other places that they might immediately think of? Sure. Well, I've got two thoughts on that. Um, first of all, I think that they should look at a university like Indiana just as part of their first round of research. And, um, you know, I always, I always encourage students who are early in the process, sit down, uh, make a list of 10 things that you want in a university. Ask your parents to do the same thing and then get together and compare, <laughs> compare your lists. But don't start cutting anything until you start actually looking at the institutions and finding out what does that thing on my list actually look like at the universities. Um, so I, I, you know, I would encourage any student, you should, you should never, you should never um, remove an institution just based on demographics. You know, start out with your big list and whittle down. So that's, that's the first thing. But in terms of, you know, if we make the cut for them, that is right, you know, because we are still huge proponents of good fit. And I, I actually tell our recruiters in our training, that we do when they go out on the road, I said, you will find yourself writing another university's name on the back of your business card at least half of the time. And that's what you should be doing. If you're not doing that, then eh, you're probably not um, counseling a student appropriately. So that good fit conversation is very much um, 
part of what we do. Uh, if we make that, if we make their cut and we're on that list, I think some of the benefits that we offer, and this has maybe less to do with a, a public flagship and more to do with um, a, a research, a major research university, is the breadth of what we do here. Um, is significant. So the opportunities to engage in um, active research, potential opportunities to publish, even you know, as an undergraduate, that we have programs that allow for that. Um, and then the exploratory uh, aspect of what we do. I think that's all over the campus. So this idea of not just liberal liberal arts and sciences, which is, you know, the foundation of most universities in the U.S., but the idea of interdisciplinarianism. So really understanding how in this, um, you know, in this pharmacology class that, that you're taking, what's the business component of that? So if you're doing research that's going to relate to the development of a drug, well, what are the next steps? How is that drug um, put out into a healthcare market? What are the implications from a business perspective? You know, so it's all of these kind of things and, and getting then into public health and how does that impact quality of life? And then how does quality of life of citizenry impact um, social justice? You know, it, it, uh, our students should be thinking about those connections that nothing stops at the wall of a discipline. There's always somewhere else to go with it. So I think that that's a big benefit that we offer. Now, in terms, you know, from the from the public perspective, I do think that there is something to be said for the fact that uh, a university like IU still has a state mandate to uh, provide services. So we're educating about 55% of our student undergraduate student body is uh, Indiana residents. So, yes, students are going to be interacting with uh, peers from all over the world and all over the U.S., but they're also going to have um, some specific insight into a particular culture. So they're going to get to know about Indiana or Ohio or Missouri or Tennessee, you know, wherever they happen to be. And I think that that could be, um, it's a little bit of best of both worlds. They're going to get an Indiana experience, but they're also going to get a global experience and kind of the quintessential U.S. experience. So there's a, there are a lot of benefits, and I could spell them all out if I weren't, uh, <laughs> I'd be a terrible admissions professional if I couldn't. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think, you know, getting back into what you do, David, and your work is we should be and we are supporting those tenets of good fit that you're promoting with students. So, you know, that we should – you should never be surprised by what we're saying to a student. Absolutely. I, mean, I agree with you 100%. I think it's, it's again, that, that dividing line of when to push back and, and challenge assumptions and, and – preconceptions really about what's out there and when to realize actually this is bound up in a whole sense of, of values that are fundamental to who that student is and I, you know, I just from what you said I've taken some tips myself about what the parents want and what the students want and, and matching those together which until every counselor will, will say yep I've, I've been there. John I'm very conscious of your time and, and you've given a lot of time for me. Um, I, there's one more, more serious question I want to ask you but I, I know that you are a, a bit of a travel guru and certainly my time chance you in various places around the world has, has made me think about how am I doing travel better as a very experienced global traveler I, if you don't mind I'd like John Wilkerson's top tip to someone maybe starting out new in this field to 
to travel more effectively? Hard shell carry-on and packing cubes. You should never check a bag. I am, I am, um, I am not a slight individual in terms of size, and uh, I can do three weeks in a carry-on with two full suits, slacks, multiple pair of shoes. Um, you, you always want to be able to get on whatever plane is available and never worry that your, your attire for the next stop isn't going to be with you. So that is my challenge to you, and uh, I am happy to, to give travel tips on that, although I would recommend Kuka Acosta. She packs like nobody uh, I know. So University of, San, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, Kuka is, is the queen but that's that's my tip. There we go. No Ch- checked bags. Chance accepted. It's only something I've heard other people talk about, and I am not a light traveller, so I will will take <laughs> that one. Great. That's John. Last question, and I think a crucial one, given some of the things we've been talking about. Obviously, there's a lot of flux, a lot of change. We've talked about a number of these trends going on at the moment. With your crystal ball looking into the future, what do you foresee the profession is going to face in the years ahead? I think there is going – I think the um, international student mobility will continue to rise, but I think that the challenge for those of us who have been um, kind of easy recipients of, of those globally mobile students, I think we are going to be challenged uh, more to have to do a little bit more work, um, be a little bit more conscientious about those right fit decisions. Uh you know, I, I took note at the point that Sciences Po started offering courses in English. I thought, oh, game on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also, you know, I've I've been making the point for for a couple of years that you know, as as particularly you know, China, India, we see these fluxes in large sending countries, and as we see China numbers in particular, this is one case uh, start to slow. There's so much to unpack there, and it may not necessarily be a bad thing. If you look at a at a sending country's, um, you know, OECD data or you know published um, goals. So in the case of China, their you know their their plans to expand tertiary education, both in terms of number of seats, but also quality. If we start seeing declines. Is that necessarily a bad thing, or is that just a sign that China's plan to increase quality and access to education is working? And if it is, then we, most of all, ought to be championing that. Um, So I think that that is going to be a challenge that we're all going to have to face. We're going to have to spend a little bit more time in those international student mobility numbers, the indicators, and really examining what's happening, not within just a broad global context, but what's happening within the regions where we are actively engaging with students and be supportive of the good work wherever it's happening. Great stuff, John. I think you, you and I, as many people know, are both big supporters of the Council of International Schools. And, and I think, you know, them moving that trend forward so that actually, you know, the more collaboration institutions around the world can make to work together, whether it's study abroad, exchange programs, recruiting together is, is phenomenal. So I would, I would echo your comments there that the fact that, Education is being expanded and the quality of it for students around the world can only be a positive trend. Yeah, I think one of the greatest dangers that we we face that any anyone faces, any society faces, is anti-intellectualism. And the best way to combat that is a strong, stable and expanding education sector. 
fantastic. Absolutely, John. I, I couldn't agree more. John, it's an absolute pleasure to, to chat to you and have you as the, the first of my in-conversation with, with podcast <laughs> interviews. It's, um, I could go on for hours talking to you, John, but that, we'll have to do that over something cold and, and alcoholic at some point in the future. Sure thing. So, <laughs> fantastic. Well, David, I appreciate it very much. A huge thanks to John for his time and his insight. Please listen out to the next University Guide podcast, coming soon. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Buzzsprout or Spotify. Follow me on Twitter at UniGuyDavid, or get in touch via my website, theuniversityguide.com. <laughs>